Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Modern Washington has always offered up an impressive roster of toadies, yet the Trump administration seems to have provided a unique period of bowing and scraping. Historically, sucking up takes a variety of forms, from petty compliments to cloying flattery and outright treachery. But in the Trump administration, it didn't stop there. The kind of sycophant behavior we've seen from those in the GOP combines other attributes like hypocrisy and lying and manipulation. Throughout history, we've certainly seen our share of sycophants, from the courts of Caligula to Dickens' Uriah Heep. And when we're lucky, sometimes the gods of politics mete out just punishment to those willing to debase themselves in pursuit of some vacuous conception of success or access. And sometimes, but not often enough, we actually get to see sycophants crushing humiliation in some kind of act of self-nullification. We certainly get to see some of this in Mark Leibovich's new book, Thank You for Your Servitude. Mark Leibovich is the chronicle extraordinaire of modern Washington, a recipient of the National Magazine Award. He's the author of four previous books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, This Town. He recently joined The Atlantic after a 10-year stint as chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine, and it is my pleasure to welcome Mark Leibovich back to this program to talk about Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was a great intro. Extremely well written. I, I, you know, I, w- I couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> well, thank wouldn't you. have wanted to try. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate uh, that. When we look at, at the history of Trump and, and, and those around him that have kowtowed to him, was the die cast early on when we look at things like him getting through the Access Hollywood tape, I could shoot anyone on Fifth Avenue, etc.? Wasn't the die cast early on? There, there certainly were clues, and, and I don't know if we saw them as such then. I mean, back then we had the sort of simplistic or maybe traditional worldview that, um, you know, maybe shame would prevail, maybe justice would prevail, maybe people would actually make judgments about what kind of leaders they wanted and and actually vote accordingly. Um, As it turned out, he was able to come back from all of that. And and again, I, I think, was the die cast? Not necessarily, but I think it was cast because, again, Republicans with some exceptions, um, didn't really do anything to stop him. They didn't really hold him accountable. And, and, you know, that's his family. And when the family permits it, it's going to create a permission structure to, to sort of try to, to, to try to do more damage on a, on a larger scale. And that's sort of what we saw with Donald Trump. Was there some kind of fascination with him, almost in awe among Republicans, that he could get away with what he did, that there was almost something... I, you know, and it's an extreme word, but almost something supernatural that they were just fascinated by. Absolutely. I mean, he sort of, you know, he kind of blew all the rules, right? I mean, he, he did things that, that they only would live in fear of. I mean, most traditional politicians are pretty rule-bound. They're terrified of being exposed and humiliated. And here was a guy who seemed um, completely immune to that. And I think to some degree, Donald Trump showed a lot of his, you know, eventual followers that shamelessness is its own superpower in politics. And, you know, whether those rules apply to you or not, um, I, I think the ethic involved in 
trying to to just sort of assume that that you're not going to apologize, assume you're just going to keep going and assume that voters or sort of a critical mass of voters are going to forgive you or at least forget about it, um, you know, is itself its own kind of strategy. And it became kind of an M.O. with the Republican Party. The other kind of corollary to that for Trump was this unique ability that he seemed to have to find the weakness in people, to really understand how people could be exploited. Yeah, I mean, he said that explicitly to me um, early on. I mean, I spent a fair amount of time with him in, in 2016. And he at one point just said to me, look, I, I, I have a skill and that's I see weakness in people. And when I do, I know how to exploit it. And I thought that was pretty self-aware of him, actually. Um, You know, it doesn't make it any less scary, but it also proved prescient because it turns out that the the Republican candidates that he was um, up on a stage with, the Republican primaries, they all basically, um, you know, bent down to kiss his ring eventually. And and the weakness, you know, was theirs. And and he, you know, pushed it as far as he could. And of course, you you portray this in people like Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham, who he really nailed completely. Uh, absolutely, and and like for for different reasons. I mean, everyone has sort of their own weak spots and their own reasons for for making the deals that they make. But McCarthy and Graham are two sort of quintessential Washington characters who both are desperate to either keep their jobs or get a better job in McCarthy's case. I mean, McCarthy wants to be Speaker of the House. It's sort of his his entire reason for living at this point. And to do that, you need the blessing of Donald Trump. So they're willing to, to pay the price of submission. And that's sort of, that, unfortunately, that that's the sort of thing that has, has shaped our national policy and also the sort of ethic of the Republican Party um, right now and probably will going forward. Do any of these people feel and that, that you talk to, and certainly your your conversation with McCarthy was was so instructive, feel any kind of shame of their own for the way they have reacted to Trump? Um, I mean, I think probably on some level. I mean, these are not people who are quick to um, sort of hand ring, at least in front of um, like me. But but they, I, I think maybe on some level they do, but they don't really seem to stop to think about it very much. I mean, I think. Again, if there's one lesson that Donald Trump taught a lot of these folks is just to keep going and don't really think twice about the the consequences of your own legacy, consequences to the country, the Constitution and what have you. And, you know, really the sort of thinking like that is, is sort of for losers. I mean, this is all about winning. This is all about sort of brute force. And, um, you know, anything else is a waste of time. Was there a difference, as you saw it, in terms of the way people reacted to him among what has been referred to as team normal versus team crazy? Um, you know, unfortunately, not enough. I mean, there was a huge gap in, in my reporting between what people were saying privately, uh, what Republicans were saying privately about Donald Trump and what they were saying publicly. I mean, and the private was was quite contemptuous. Um, quite critical and, and, you know, some embarrassment even. The public, as as we all saw, is just adoration, just adulation. And, and they would sort of um, flatter him because they knew that, that Donald Trump needed flattery. And, you know, that was the sort of extreme hypocrisy that was on full display as I was reporting this. What were they afraid of? I mean, there was always this sense of fear of, of Donald Trump. What were some of these people afraid of? 
you know, um, I mean, it's sort of a whole number of things. I mean, part of it was just, uh, you know, a fear of a mean tweet, a fear of being bullied in weird, in a weird way. And it sort of goes back to, 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 to middle school in some ways. Um, I think many of them are, are afraid of losing their jobs, losing their parking space, being humiliated in a weird way, getting on the wrong side of the, of, of, you know, of the bully. And, and again, it gets very primal after a while. So, um, I mean, obviously there are different calculations that different people make. Um, but one of them didn't seem to be, you know, an ability to be proud of, of what you're contributing and, and, you know, what, what the, what your grandchildren might read about you in history books. Which didn't really seem to bother any of them. And in fact, there were a couple that you talked to about, you know, their place in history and they, they kind of laughed at that. Yeah, they did. They kind of, they were always very dismissive of that, you know, and I asked that of a lot of them, I mean, McCarthy, Graham, I mean, they, they were particularly contemptuous of the idea. And again, I mean, anything that kind of got in the way of the short-term interest and, and expediency of of pleasing Donald Trump and and flattering him and, and you know, winning the, the, the next election uh, was considered extraneous to their interests. And it was pretty depressing, but it was a pretty, a pretty common response whenever I would ask questions about things like history and legacy. Inherent in that, was there a certain contempt for, for voters, for their constituents that you sensed in that? I would say so. I mean, I think if you sort of play it out in your mind, I mean, yes, these are there's a level of dishonesty um, <clears throat> play acting that reflects, I think, a really dim view of a lot of people that that, you know, that they need to vote for them. So, yeah, I would say so. Does this story and what we saw in bold relief here and what we've been talking about Tell us something about the kind of people that that politics, that Washington politics attracts, that, that there's something fundamental in their character. Yeah, I think sadly, yes. I mean, I think in some ways it's a confirmation of some of our worst fears about what the real character is that lurks behind you know, these public officials. I mean, I think we all kind of understand that public life is no picnic. It requires you know, some compromise and sacrifice. And also that, you know, politicians really like anyone, they're going to talk a little differently, depending on different audiences they might be might be in front of. But um, yeah, no, I mean, this really, really lays it out pretty nakedly in a way that um, I don't think I've ever seen before. And I, I think to some degree, um, it, it confirms something that Robert Caro, the historian, says, um, and I've heard him say before, which is that power doesn't so much corrupt as it does it reveals. And I think power reveals the most in the people who enable its perpetuation. And what you saw here in the extreme, are, are these traits you've seen in Washington for years? I mean, you've been talking to these people, covering people on both political parties for years. This was the most extreme case but is it really what's always been percolating below the surface? Um, to some degree. I mean, again, I think this is the most extreme and most, you know, really stark case. But I think, you know, I think a lot of the traits that that are classic to Washington, you know, opportunism, um, self-perpetuation, um, just, you know, just needing to to be in the room, needing to be in the mix is is something that. You know, I've certainly seen and, and many people before me have seen for, for many, many decades, even centuries. But again, this this is a whole new ballgame because the price was so high and 
also the the cost was so high. I mean, I, I think um, you know, I'm not one of these people who thinks it's extreme and, and um, you know exaggerated to say that that democracy is clearly at risk now. And and I think that that the next few elections certainly will be just really pivotal, both in seeing whether, you know, we can pull them off seamlessly, but also, you know, what the country really wants and whether this is something that, that they want to continue into the future. Because I think a lot of people would say that Donald Trump's ability to be viable for six, seven years, which, you know, which he has been and continues to be, um, is something that surprised them because they thought it was probably going to end fairly early on. And it didn't. He's still here. Is the way this has played out Something that you think is is even even given that this behavior is inherent in the kind of people that Washington attracts, is the extremity of this sui generis to Trump, or might others of either political party in the future be able to pull off something like this? Well, I, I think Trump has created a new model, um, definitely, and I think one of the models is just sort of just disregarding guardrails, disregarding norms. Um, playing by your own set of rules and disregarding those who try to enforce rules around you. So, yeah, I don't see how, I mean, I think there already have been quite a few copycats or sort of mini Trumps that have tried to pop up in, in the Republican party. Um, you know, I hope it doesn't become the norm. Um, but at the same time, you know, the more traditional model, like a Joe Biden, for instance, um, you know, doesn't seem to be faring terribly well either, but, you know, as far as popularity goes, I mean, I think, Certainly, I mean, he's someone who is steeped in the traditions of politics and in norms and seems to be a very decent man. But that hasn't helped him, you know, be really any more popular than Donald Trump right now. So, I mean, obviously, these are different people in different times and and different circumstances. But at the same time, um, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is, I think, unique. But I also think he's someone that, you know, has been emulated and will be emulated, unfortunately. How has this changed Washington in, in, in the long run? How do you see this as a fundamental change? Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you walk around Washington, it, it sort of looks the same. It feels the same. It's still a very wealthy city. It's a very comfortable city. It's a very beautiful city. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's a city that people are moving to and, and are paying a lot to live in. Um, but I, I do think, you know, doing business here is, in politics and getting things done is more difficult. I, I think, you know, the extremes are being rewarded by their, for their, you know, for their efforts to get attention, um, to outrage. Um, and, and look, I mean, there actually have been some, some examples recently, um, in the current Congress and the Senate and, you know, with the Biden administration of actually getting some things done. So, I mean, it's not like this has been a completely unproductive time, but I also think, um, it's pretty scary. I mean, like we, we've all lived some, through something here, January 6th, that period after January 6th until around the inauguration, which was a really scary period. And, and really in the larger context, um, the coronavirus and just sort of the shutdown and the sort of disconnection around that, which has been, you know, which is true, obviously, around the country and around the world. But I, I think that it, it feels like a much harsher place. It feels like kind of a scarier place to some degree. Um, and like, Elsewhere in America, I mean, economic strains are, are very real as they are here. Crime is up. Um, inflation is up. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do sense that, that, you know, again, whether that has anything to do with Trump or, or not, I mean, who knows? But I, I think that things do not feel terribly secure around here right now. And I think that's a kind of 
um, more pronounced feeling when it happens to be the nation's capital that everyone around the country is um, is sort of looking to. There are those scary words that, that we hear on Wall Street from time to time when somebody says, this time it's different. It's always the time to kind of run for the hills. But there's a sense, as you talk about Washington, that this time in Washington is different. You know, I mean, it, it does feel that way to some degree. I mean, I guess part of the reason is, um, you know, in sort of focusing on the Republican Party, the, you know, every two years, every four years, there are going to be new people coming to town. I mean, that's the nature of our democracy and elections, and it's kind of a beautiful thing. But I, I think the strain of, of Republicans of, you know, in the last couple of election cycles and probably in the next few uh, has been very Trumpy. Um, you know, you have a fairly traditional conservative Republican like Roy Blunt being replaced possibly by you know, an extreme Trumpist like Eric Greitens in Missouri. I mean, that, that primary, that election hasn't happened yet. Or Herschel Walker or J.D. Vance or all of these Trump handpicked Senate candidates like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. You know, if they were to prevail, um, you know, that's, that, this is not a cast of characters that's going to kind of have a usher in a period of, of, of quiet reflection about what kind of party the Republicans want to be. Um, I mean, this is, these are a whole group of people that are bound very tightly to Donald Trump. And, you know, so that, that itself is ominous. I don't, I, that doesn't speak well to change or compromise or, or really anything terribly productive. So, you know, unfortunately I, I don't, my sense is the new, sort of batches of people we're seeing coming through Washington are not people who want necessarily to get a lot done, um, but who want to sort of emulate Donald Trump's um, TV stardom, just ability to get attention, ability to offend as many people as possible. And and the reward structure is sort of contained within there. You, you've gone deep into this. You've studied the sociology of Washington. But as you talk to traditional old Washington hands, Republicans in particular, how do they look at this and, and how do they see this world that is so different than the world that they grew up in? I mean, I think there's quite a bit of exasperation. I, I think there's there's just they, they, there's sort of a disbelief. But at the same time, people in Washington <laughs> figure out a way to make it work for themselves. I, I don't know if that's a, a great sign of resilience or a great sign of shamelessness or blinders on or, or what have you. But Look, a lot of these same, you know, Republicans, actually, who are lamenting the loss of a more traditional, predictable, professional party are the same people who are still doing extremely well in Washington, who are cultivating contacts in the Trump world, who have a lot of, you know, who are probably working closely with people who helped get Donald Trump elected. So obviously it's not true in every case, and it's created a lot of strains on a lot of old friendships. But but ultimately, um, one sort of one characteristic of, of Washington is an ability to look beyond, you know, whatever is exasperating you in the moment to to continue to do business for better or for worse in, in ways that can benefit you. Are any of these people that have become his syncophants, any of these people that we've been talking about, do any of them really have a friendship with Donald Trump? I don't think so. I mean, nothing that seems real. I mean, I think there there is a sort of a whole core of them who think it's extremely cool to be able to go down to the president's uh, club and, and hang out with him and golf with him and visit him at the White House. I mean, part of it is, is just, you know, pure starstruckedness that goes with 
getting to hang around a president or a former president in this case. Um, and, you know, it's kind of shallow, but it's also very common in politics. Um, so, but I don't, I don't see any real friendship there at all. I mean, I think that that's indicated in how they speak privately about him. And, um, you know, I don't think Donald Trump has a lot of friends. I think he has a very, very close circle of, of hyper loyalists and family and, and it doesn't go much beyond there. So, um, yeah, so I, I don't think that's unusual for, for his experience, but I also think that, it belies the, the the deep affection he demands and the sort of widespread sort of adulation he, he demands when he's in a you know, public setting. And of course, the other side of that, and somebody tweeted this out the other day, that if Donald Trump died tomorrow, all of these people would say, you know, I, I didn't like him. I, I, I barely knew him, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, like it would be, um, first of all, it'd be surprising. I mean, I think Donald Trump seems like someone who's going to live forever right now. I mean, he, 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 sure. he survives. Well, no, he, he's, he's, I mean, saying this about him, he's a survivor. He survives what seems like a fairly unhealthy lifestyle. Um, he survives a great deal of what looks from the outside to be just crushing stress and humiliation. And yet he just seems to sort of um, go through it. I mean, the normal rules don't seem to apply to him, and that seems to extend to um, to health and nature and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, but also, I think, yeah, I, I don't imagine that there will be, you know, a huge outpouring. I mean, I think there probably. I mean, there probably will be because he has a, a big political following. But I'm not sure it would look like anything, you know, you would expect, you know, among someone who is a truly uh, deeply admired historical man. Mark Leibovich, the book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me, and um, I'll come back anytime. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you.